what do you think that's doing to your brain? It's triggering past memories of eating those Oreos, feeling that sugar high. Um, and you're not really thinking about the loss of, you know, the, the guilt that's going to come afterwards. You're thinking about the immediate reward and your brain likes that kind of thing, to be honest, right? We like rewards, um, immediate gratification. Welcome to the Your Jeevan Podcast with me, Dr. Soheib Imtiaz. Your Jeevan is the secret to taking your performance to the next level. Each week, we host the world's leading experts pushing the boundaries of health, nutrition, fitness, therapeutics, technology, and mental performance. This is your gateway to the world of optimization. So let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Your Jeevan podcast. And today, we're talking about a subject that is very close to my heart. Um, I did found, I was a founder of the Human Behavior Community over on Clubhouse. Um, not being a behavioral scientist, I'm a, I'm, a medical, I'm a physician by background. But it was a subject that really caught my attention when I was in business school. And it's interesting because in medical school, we get taught almost zero behavioral science. And the understanding and the nuances of behavioral science are so broad and vast, and it's a very evolving field that it kind of urged me to delve into it. Because if I'm seeing my patients, I'm seeing my clients, I'm trying to improve people's health. If I don't have the basic understanding of human behavior, it's something that's very difficult to do. And that's why we're joined by Casey Hughes today. Um, she's a behavioral scientist. She's someone who's been working closely with us on our Jeevan program, so we're very lucky to have her. She's someone who's worked uh, at you know great institutions like Stanford. She's worked at Apple and has a brilliant resume that we'll hear about from her has extensive experience in, in behavioral science. And because it's a subject that I really enjoy, I'm really looking forward to having her on the podcast today. So without further ado, Casey, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, we've been lucky enough to be in a lot of meetings recently. So I've yeah. been blessed with, uh, with you know, being able to ask these questions. That I love asking behavioral scientists, but I guess today we can do it in more of a, a theoretical way as well. So Casey, first of all, I'd love to know, obviously for the listeners, about your background. And then secondly, what got you interested in behavioral science and what kind of made you propel further with all these brilliant apps and health tech companies you've worked with? Great. Well, thanks for having me, Soheib. It's it's great to be here. Uh, I, I sure love talking about behavior change. So, um, you know, I'll do my best to be concise. Uh, you know, for most for most of my life, before I knew what behavioral science was, I had a front row seat to the complexities of human behavior. Uh, I grew up in a family where it was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, both of my, you know, both of my parents were beautiful, incredible humans who also uh, struggled with substance use disorder. And, you know, throughout my childhood, I was constantly trying to figure out why they made the decisions that they did, why they had the strongest intentions to change and yet didn't or couldn't or faced enormous barriers and challenges uh, to accomplishing something that did mean so much to them. Um, I was fascinated with psychology and, and how the brain uh, works in that regard and how environment um, interacts with our behaviors to shape our health outcomes. And so, you know, fast forward, I did my undergrad in clinical psychology. I was, uh, you know, still a little bit on that codependent course of trying to save them and save the world. And I thought I was going to be a health psychologist. And then it really hit me in the face. And I said, you know what, I this isn't the right path for me because, you know, entering that realm is still too, too fresh. But what can I do with my life uh, that I can apply uh this fascinating science around human behavior in a way that can really help the world. And that's when I was first introduced to the field of health and wellness coaching. And I said, you know what? I can do this. I can help people with things like weight loss and smoking cessation and physical activity. And so I really channeled my energy there because to be honest, I was still healing and in, in many other areas of my life. And I just wasn't ready to touch those. So I switched course a bit and I started working as a health and wellness coach. Uh, I worked with patients with cardiometabolic disease and 
I again hit a really critical crossroads where I said, okay, I have this undergraduate degree in psychology. I understand basic mechanisms. I've been trained as a health and wellness coach, but still I have patients who say they want to change. They buy the sneakers, they buy all the food for their new healthy eating pattern, and they don't show up for their next visit with me. Why? What is happening? So I went back to school again. I did my master's degree in health promotion science. And then I started to get it. I started to understand how through behavioral science, you can investigate challenges that are really much deeper than any high level conversation uh, can elicit and understand. And I really, again, fell in love with this idea of uh, behavioral investigation, behavioral prescription, and mapping very personalized and specific interventions, whether they're the way you approach a conversation, the way you design an email, the way you design a nudge, to map to those people's specific needs. And I started seeing really positive results. Um, I was at Stanford and I was uh, building Stanford's first health and wellness coaching program from the ground up, got to apply a lot of this knowledge, uh, and that really set off the rest of my career uh, in behavioral science and design. I absolutely love it. I can see you're so passionate about the field. And often I've talked to a lot of uh, our guests and they often, often have a triggering point in their own life that triggers mm-hmm. this passion for a field. And it seems like you really had that. And... I guess behavioral science is such a large and evolving field. Um, I came across behavioral economics when I was in business school. And similar to you, I always ask the why. Why do my patients not make these changes, right? What are the barriers? And when you can start appreciating, like, what you're an expert in, the behavioral lens, everything starts to align and make sense. And a lot of my board certification lifestyle medicine, the art of it was actually the understanding motivational interviewing and understanding behavioral change. And that's why... You can look at both sides because you've been a health coach yourself. So you know the actual one-on-one with a client, that side of it, as well as all the theory and frameworks, which I think is super unique because often we see people from either a very theoretical point of view or a very just hands-on point of view. And then I guess Stanford setting that up, that's just quite a <laughs> well done for doing that. I mean, I'm sure that's, that's that's no easy thing to do. Led you to obviously, the big word in everyone's mind is Apple. Um, obviously, Apple doing a lot. I think um, Steve Jobs said Apple will be known as a health company. And when I think of health company, I think of wearables and behavior change. That comes to my mind. Think of everyday steps. We think about sleep scores. We start to think about, you know, nutrition, um, kind of the basic lifestyle habits. So could you share with us anything from your time at Apple of, of, of kind of maybe some of what the vision is at Apple or kind of how you worked at Apple um, with, with what you were setting up over there? Apple is an incredible, incredible place. I was uh, very fortunate to uh, to join Dr. Sumble Desai uh, and join her team. Um, I worked for her at Stanford, and then I got to join her team at Apple. And you know, the reason why I believe there's so much potential for Apple to make a really big impression um, and make a really big dent in health and well-being comes down to natural human behaviors in this day and age. People have their phones with them at all times. Um, Most, you know, I won't say most, but a lot of people are are wearing um, the Apple Watch and these these pieces of hardware and software can can learn a lot about a person without a lot of conscious effort on their part. We live in a world where there is so much asked of us and um, we are busier than ever before. And so when you can help someone and and guide them on a path towards better health without them even really being consciously aware of it or having to put a lot of effort into that and that you have something working for you, it it takes some barriers away automatically. Now, of course, there's things you have to think about, like can people afford an Apple Watch, right? Those are big questions to ask when we think about population level interventions. But at the end of the day, you know, Apple is known for developing really um, novel 
user experiences and uh, surprising and delighting people with the way that they advance technology. So I was really fortunate um, to be a part of that team and, you know, help with some of those innovations. Yeah, I mean, design is super important. I've seen that brilliant solutions fail because the user or the patient or the consumer just didn't have that emotional connection, right? And that actually makes me want to bring the conversation back to the the basics, because I think a lot of the listeners will want to know, what is a habit? So Casey, I'd love to know what is a habit and how can you establish a habit? If you ask what a habit is to a scientist, the different <laughs> there may be a very uh, different explanation than than asking an everyday person, and that's because this word has gotten a little messy over the years. Um, we've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of self help books on how to build habits. We talk, we use the term very loosely. When I think of a habit, I think about a behavior that is highly automatic, requires very little conscious effort, and is cued by stimuli uh, in the environment. So it is a myelinated pathway in the brain that has been formed over repetition over many, many years often. Now, habits, a lot of our habits are formed uh, during adolescence, during young adulthood, some even in childhood, and not all habits are positive. So though we use the term habit, you know, in a way to talk about health promoting behaviors, um, habits can also be very harmful for our health. For example, we know, um, this is a whole nother topic, right? But we know that big soda. We know that big industry players, they specifically advertise sugary beverage, sugary beverage consumption uh, for uh, minority youth. They use, um, you know, early in, and early on in life when they're watching cartoons, when they're watching TV, they are being exposed to very persuasive and strategic ads encouraging them to adopt these habits of drinking sugary beverages. It's it's one of the leading drivers of childhood and uh, adult obesity. So these habits of drinking sugary beverages, for example, maybe grabbing uh, a glass of Sprite uh, with your lunch those tend to become automatic behaviors and ones that lead us to go to the grocery store and quickly grab, uh, you know, the pack of soda off the wall and, and constantly keep it in our fridge and, and do it without thinking, right? So habits are things, uh, are behaviors that have been really ingrained, um, you know, over a long, a long period of time. Uh, another example would be you know, leaving a room and as you're leaving the room and you're in the periphery of your vision, seeing the light switch and then going to turn the light off when you leave a room, right? So there's things that our brains pick up on um, as cues that trigger those memories of the habitual behaviors. That's very funny because um, with the light switching, because I'm, I'm originally from the UK, our switches are the other way. So since I've come to the US, my habit is like really strange. And I think that's a brilliant example of it. Same with driving on the road. You guys drive on the other side of the road. Well, yes. you probably think I drive on the other side of the road. And you're and it's it's you know, it's a subconscious thing that I just don't realize, but I have to cognitively engage my brain mm -hmm. to do it the other way. Um, I mean that, that's a brilliant explanation of what habits are, and it was interesting because I was listening to Huberman talk about habits and he was saying how some studies show habits are very much personalized so it takes different people different amounts of time to form a habit because in the literature or popular science we hear a lot about 66 days to form a habit or some some number plugged out of the air um what is your approach on that to build a sustainable long-term habit is it something that's individualized are there things that can be done to accelerate forming a good habit um mm -hmm. let's talk about good habits here because i think bad habits <laughs> can, can, can um you know, sometimes it can form a bit quicker, but to form a, you know, a good habit, say a coach has told you to prescribe you to put your phone away two hours before bed. Mm -hmm. How can you create conditions to A, accelerate that habit formation and B, do you think it's individualized? How long it takes to form that habit? When it comes to building habits, there are a few 
really important things to consider. So ultimately, the goal is behavioral automaticity. Uh, how automatic can that behavior, you know, how can we get to a place where we remove motivation from the equation at all? So when you truly form a habit, right, and Christopher Gardner, who's a really leading authority on habit science. He talks a lot about this in his papers, right? When when you get to a point where a habit is automatic, there's very little motivation required. That's not necessarily true right in the beginning. Um, when you are first starting to form a habit, it does require motivation to engage in that behavior repeatedly until your brain starts kicking in and and myelinating those pathways, strengthening those pathways um, to make it more automatic. So when I'm working with people or when I'm designing habit formation software, the first big thing to consider is what is something in my life right now, a habit I like to build that feels interesting to me, that feels doable to me, um, you want to get the level of specificity uh, optimized, but not make it so very specific that there's no room for flexibility. So for example, if you're working on using smaller dishware, um, right, the habit of using smaller dishware as a means to reduce your portion sizes, then what happens if you go to a friend's house or what happens if you, you know, go to a hotel or, you know, whatnot, you, you're going to have to adapt, right? You don't have your specific set of plates and, and silverware available. So it's really important to choose habits that you have a, a good chance of developing some repetition around and getting them at a specific enough level where you can repeat that specific behavior in the same context, which can be very helpful, right, um, when you get started, but then slowly start adapting that and becoming more flexible depending on your environment. Another example would be um, if you wanted to try to get now we're entering routine territory a little bit here, but I'll, I'll just use this example because I think it still applies. If, you know, every morning you wanted to do a 15 minute meditation right when you wake up instead of scrolling through Instagram, um, if you wake up in your own bedroom, right, you may see cues around you that you've maybe purposely established or have just been established naturally. Um, you do the meditation routine, you know, you log your progress, great. But if you're traveling for work, how can we still set you up so that you wake up in that hotel bed and you have cues to engage in that meditation routine? Um, so there's, that's really important to start thinking about. But right off the bat, um, establishing, you know, a behavior that interests you is doable. You can have strong motivation around um, and repeat it multiple times in the same context is going to help your brain. Amazing. It's funny because um, often habits I've not liked to establish or things I've failed on have been, sometimes you incorporate a new supplement, say, for example, in your, in your routine, um, take it for a few days and I'll forget. And what I've done personally in my life is, Something I do every single day, obviously, is brush my teeth. So I'll couple the two things together. And I felt like it's worked for me. And I've seen it being described as habit stacking. Mm -hmm. Is that something that works? Um, is it something that you would propose to people who are struggling to form certain habits? Absolutely. It's, it serves as a cue for your brain. Right. So you are essentially associating uh, a behavior with a different behavior and you're providing your brain with a visual cue uh, to enact that behavior. The same thing would be true with medication adherence. We know this works really well. If you stick your medicine uh, pill bottle next to your toothbrush, which again, brushing your teeth maybe something hopefully you've done <laughs> for your entire most of your life. Um, you know, stacking that pill bottle right next to your toothbrush is going to cue to your brain to take your pills. If you hide them away in a cabinet, it, it's just not as likely that you're going to remember or be cued uh, to do that behavior. 
The same thing is true when we look at the opposite, right? If you put those cookies at the front of your pantry, every time you go, if if you have a habit of walking to the pantry about 10 a.m. every day and you find yourself you know, walking there without even consciously thinking about it, you open your pantry and see the box of cookies or Oreos. What do you think that's doing to your brain? It's triggering past memories of eating those Oreos, feeling that sugar high. Um, and you're not really thinking about the loss of, you know, the the guilt that's going to come afterwards. You're thinking about the immediate reward and your brain likes that kind of thing, to be honest, right? We like rewards, um, immediate gratification. So when you're talking about reversing a habit, you want to remove cues. You want to get those Oreos in the back of your cabinet, pushed away from your visual, uh, you know, your your visual surroundings to help your brain out in the other way. Casey, I can really relate to that because just moving to the US, my, my wife's um, setup is, you know, I think she has more self-control um, because I always tell her, like, you always have these, you know, Oreos or whatever, like some type of dessert or, or something sweet always on the table in your vision, in your eye of vision, right? As you walk to the kitchen, maybe to get water or whatever. And I know in my environment, how I've always done it. I always eliminate that because I know my willpower throughout the day will wane, right? And I want to save my willpower for when I go outside. If say I'm sticking to a diet or I'm, you know, getting fit for a wedding like I am right now. Um, essentially, I've what's worked for me is I removed that cue. And, and that's what I, I need to do. But being here, that I'm, I'm constantly reminded. And there's times where I will maybe be a little stressed and I will grab for something that's not optimal for my health, right? Um, and I've really seen that play out. So that's actually a really good example that you gave. And another thing you mentioned the reward system. And that leads us very nicely into dopamine because dopamine um, Mm. has been talked about a lot, especially on social media. Um, Even if we think about the Netflix um, documentary that came out about making addictive technologies and how, you know, big tech designed certain um, apps and software to really get young people and older people repeat certain behaviors, right? Spend a lot of time mm-hmm. on that. Uh, TikTok is a brilliant example uh, of this for virality. And people can spend, I've said people like spending hours just scrolling. The next the next video is so perfectly in tune with your interests due to their advanced AI algorithms that keeps you hooked, right? So could you tell us a little bit more about dopamine and your thoughts on technology and addictive behaviors as well? and mm. how someone can break the habit of, of an addictive behavior. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, right? These these neurotransmitters, these neurochemicals that we know are highly associated um, with addictive behaviors. Um, here's my thoughts on it. Anytime you, have, you are engaging in a behavior that is providing you a reward experience that numbs out some sort of pain you want to escape that is dangerous territory. Whether, you know, again, I have two parents who who passed away from substance use disorder and, you know, going back to the opening conversation, right? Consuming alcohol provided them with intense rewards um, that numbed out the feelings of sadness, anxiety, depression. Um, When I was in my early 20s um, and I was going through all this stuff with my parents, trying to take care of them, um, I developed an eating disorder because I became so obsessed with control, right? What in my life could I control? And even the act of counting calories, the behavior of counting calories for me was rewarding. It increased uh, my feelings of happiness and joy, and it gave me those boosts and all of those neurotransmitters. And and uh, and that became addictive to me, right? Um, so it doesn't matter. There are so many different behaviors that can trigger these responses and develop associative memories, right? And so nowadays, 
for teenagers. It's getting, it, it's scrolling Instagram. It's scrolling TikTok. It is something we do that keeps us busy, that provides a reward and sometimes softens or blurs that pain or uh, masks that pain that we're experiencing. And so, you know, anytime, um, and, and an important note, Sohabe is even, you know, t- gosh, 15 years later for me, right? Where I'm, I'm healthy. I don't experience any of those issues anymore that I did in my early twenties around food. If I, um, am highly, highly stressed and say I eat white carbs or I eat something that maybe I used to binge on, I still sometimes get little hints and glimmers of those compulsions. Um, and I know having, you know, a, a deep understanding of neuroscience is I know that's old pathways in my brain. Those are old memories resurfacing of reward, you know, those reward memories. And so, I see this a lot when I'm working with patients um, who have obesity and they have tried 25 times to lose weight. They've developed really restrictive mindsets around food and they binge. And when they're binging, it numbs that that restrictive feeling they they feel day in and day out when they're trying to force themselves to eat a thousand calories just to lose a pound, right? And they binge because that food gives them a reward. And so it is something that we don't acknowledge enough in behavior change software, that people aren't coming in perfectly put together and free of past scars in their brains, right? And And past issues. And we're not designing enough for how do we help people replace um, and build new reward memories, right? Find things that are rewarding to them in very health promoting ways and not in these risky ways. I think you very well outlined actually some of the troubles of what a lot of people listening to is probably feeling because there are times where in your life you're at a stage well, you think you've got past certain behaviors, you've mm. you know grown as a person, you've you've learned, um, and I think pain is almost probably the best teachers and, and the best mechanisms for learning. But then there can be glimpses, like you described, which can not make you relapse, but almost get close to relapsing. And I think for a lot of people, that's scary, right? A lot of people I've heard, even when it comes to things like they stopped smoking because a loved one passed away because. Of lung cancer, for example, that has been a trigger point where they just cold turkey have stopped, right? And they, but, but they, then they just don't go in an environment where people are smoking because they know that's going to trigger something in them. But I think how you explain that, I think, makes it very clear of these old pathways and how they can be activated again. And I think that will make a lot of sense to a lot of people listening to this because when I think of high performers, I think of executives, and I think of how our Jeevan was saying cognitive athletes, a lot of these people are very type A personalities, right, Casey? seems like, obviously, you working at Apple Stanford, you probably have bits of this. I probably have bits of this being, being an MD as well. But, but these people often, their drive is very much linked to their success. Their inner ego is very much linked to their kind of outwardly success, right? Be it certain, being associated with certain institutions, getting a certain job, uh, grades, etc. And it's become such a big part of them over time because you have to do certain things to get to certain points in your life. Uh, when you think of the corporate world, when you think of the um, academic world, and that becomes such a big like you know, association and part of their personality that's very hard to disassociate. And what I've seen is that a lot of these people, yes, may be very successful, but they're really struggling. Some of them can really be struggling and almost numbing their pain, like you said it. And using either substances to sedate them, um, going through experiences, and, and kind of that's what keeps them going. So what would your, uh, I, obviously I know when I'm talking from a psychiatry point of view here, it's, it's not about that, but what would your advice be to those people who, you know, day-to-day are showing up, you know, they're, they're performing, but when they're away from their work or whatever, they're really struggling with a certain dangerous behavior. Do you think they should be seeking help, um, medical help, therapy. Is there other ways that they can help support themselves? Would it be a support system? What have you seen with your kind of extensive coaching people with, with, with you know, a range of behaviors? 
One of the biggest problems that I see with high performers is denial. We don't want to admit to ourselves that there are still aspects of our well-being that need improvement, right? We don't, we're up on stages or we're delivering pitches. We are the boss of large organizations and we don't want to admit that we need help too. It can be a, a huge barrier. And to be honest, I, I used to struggle really hard with that, right? Um, I used to think if I'm a high-performing leader, I'm looked up to as the one with wisdom and guidance and leading these large teams, then I can't be known. I can't have flaws, right? I, I, I teach well-being. I am well. And when I realized that was utterly and completely false, and I started addressing the areas of my life that could be optimized, it was like I became a new person and I developed a whole new capacity to lead and be authentic, right? And and accept that we are all imperfect. If you spend your life chasing perfect, you're going to wind up miserable, unhealthy, and and ineffective, right? It's why I freely speak about, you know, the things that have happened in my life and the ways that I've been imperfect and, and the flaws I've experienced, um, you know, and I... I shouldn't even say flaws. I should see, I should say areas for improvement, right? That right there. I still sometimes struggle with self labels. There you go. You just witnessed it, right? But, you know, I'm here to tell you there is such a beauty in breaking down that stigma that we um, perpetuate in society that leaders have to be perfect. And, and we say, hey, you know, you know, I'll tell you, just a year ago, I was working incredibly long hours, um, you know, at my job. And when I was with my kids, I was still thinking about work. I was still thinking about the prototypes. I was still thinking about the business plan. And I was somewhere else. I was excelling at work. I was being, you know, I was doing all the things right on paper, but I was neglecting a part of myself that was really important to me, which was being an outstanding mother to my children. And so that's what I worked on last year. I worked on creating work-life balance. I worked on separating work from home and it brought me to a new level of cognitive performance, right? So it all comes down to identifying, first of all, accepting that you are imperfect, identifying the areas that you can improve and optimize and then going after those full-hearted and start building habits and breaking the unhealthy ones. I, I love that because so many ways that resonates with me because often people, you've, you've kind of described how there's more to life and more to yourself than, than just work. You can still perform well and probably perform better in certain ways if you give yourself that space. And I think the, the biggest question I get asked is, people who don't have time, right? And they're like, we have, like you said, working long hours. How do we adopt healthy habits? How do we do what we're interested in with such busy schedules? Uh, especially now, if you look at people's screen times, if you were to pull out a random person's screen time, yeah, you would just see that amount of usage on Instagram, not Facebook anymore, but TikTok and, and all of that. And, and I often say like, if you can just pull that out and you can, you can make time because that's where you're spending time so mapping that out people can always create time i feel obviously there are times when you'll be super busy and you may have to let certain things go but i think for long term as we you know think about achieving this, this burnout is very real and you've described that how you're on the path to burnout if you don't identify this sooner and it will hurt you in the long term so that makes me actually ask you the question about time so I heard a lot about energy management and time management when kind of people who are successful set their routines and schedules. A lot of people ask me, I don't have time. Doctor, I don't have time to, you know, an hour in the gym. I don't have time to do meal prep. I can't sleep for seven hours because I have a meeting at 6 a.m. My child, you know, doesn't sleep, wakes me up at three. 
and, and I always turn around and say that it's better doing something than nothing. You, I think the all or nothing thinking, and this is a common bias, right? Common heuristic that we think about. A lot of people have this all or nothing thinking where either they do this perfect workout or they do nothing, right? Nothing in between. How, how do you view that? Do you think, what is a good way of someone to kind of build something up, establish a habit slowly? What would your tips there be? The first thing that I always work with people on is one, how might your perceptions differ from reality? So perceptions are very powerful and we know that they can shift uh, based on you know, the situation that we're in, the context that we're in, right? If we just came off five back-to-back meetings and we say, you know, we're we're probably much more likely to say and to think, I don't have time to work out. Um, that perception may change the next day when you have a free day. But again, then enter this mindset of all or nothing thinking, well, I didn't work out Monday and Tuesday this week. So this week's a wash, just start next Monday. Oh, but then it was Sunday, you know, both kids were sick. I'm so tired. You know, Monday comes, I don't feel like working out. The cycle just keeps repeating. And then before people know it, there has been weeks, months, or years that have gone by and they still have not started engaging in the habit that they want to. I don't know how else to say it other than sometimes you just have to do it. Um, so motivation does not always come before behavior. Um, you know, I, from 15 years of experience, I can very confidently say that sometimes when people start engaging in behaviors, even when they don't want to, they find that there is motivation that starts uh you know, uh, developing and growing and evolving within them because they're being, they're feeling rewards as they're exercising. They see rewards when they notice differences in their puffiness, in their focus, in the way that they look. So sometimes you just have to try and you just have to get started. Um, and then, you know, it will help you shift your perceptions a bit because when you go out and go for that 10 minute run or walk or dance uh, between commercials on your favorite show, you start to say, oh, wait a minute, right? Maybe my perception of time was a little bit off. Maybe there were some subconscious biases uh, in there that were uh, distorting my view of this a little bit. Uh, and I see this all the time. People tell me, Casey, I, time is a huge barrier. I just don't have it. Right. I do this and that. And then we talk and we say, Hey, what do you do at lunch? Oh, well, I sit in the break room. Right. And I usually ch catch up on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, what's something else you could do at lunch? Well, you know, I guess I could put a podcast in and walk on the grounds. There's a really pretty hill. I like to look at great. Right. They try it. And then they're like, that was great. I totally had time to get my heart rate up. So that can happen in the span of 24 hours. So, you know, don't, um, don't let your thoughts trick you, uh, or fool you because, you know, it happens. It definitely happens. I can tell you're in California, pretty hills. <laughs> you're, you're in, a California. In, the spring. <laughs> in the spring. No, absolutely. Um, especially with all this evidence that's especially coming out, how even a 10, minute, 10 to 15 minute walk after a meal can change your blood glucose levels and uh, affect your you know, body glycemia as well. It's the small things that actually compound, right? Compounding over time across a year, you end up being very healthy. So that's why I say these, these micro habits, how I call it, really can help you over time be a lot healthier. And I think you described it beautifully. Like it's often what we perceive, right? And we actually think about it, we can get that amount done. And, and perfection, you mentioned this before very eloquently. Aiming for perfection, often, even if you come close, you feel like a failure, right? If you set your standards, I think happiness, a lot of it people say is, you know, your expectations and where you land, right? And then that difference is happiness. So I always say, like, I'm not saying don't be ambitious, don't set big goals, but sometimes be a little realistic. Every time you achieve that, you feel a little happier, you get more motivation, and you start to kind of establish them. Um, and on that thought, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the executives um, that, you know, we're hoping to work with at Jeevan, or we're looking at, I know they'll be very ambitious people. They're going to set mm -hmm. 
you know, goals, which are going to be like, you know, on the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger in like, you know, six months. Probably quite not that, but, you know, or perform, you know, like an AI robot or something like that. Um, what are your thoughts on when setting goals? How does someone set more realistic goals? Hmm. You know, there's <clears throat> there's always been this debate around multiple health behavior change uh, interventions versus single behavior change interventions. Uh, do you suggest that someone set multiple goals and they have this domino uh, reciprocal effect on one another? Uh, or do you focus on a single one, assuming that they don't have, you know, an, enough mental focus or energy or commitment to focus on more than one thing at a time? The answer will always be it depends. Uh, it depends on things like past experience. Uh has goal setting been very traumatic for people in the past? Uh, and a lot of the times the answer is yes. Um, right. We're about to enter behavior change season, Jan one, where, you know, downloads of, of habit apps and subscriptions are going to go through the roof, uh, but they're going to plummet in March and April. Like they always do uh, because people have, you know, planning fallacy is very real. Um, we think that we can often accomplish, uh, especially when we're type A personalities or we're very, we have high expectations for ourselves. We think that we can accomplish maybe more than is realistic for us in this moment. I don't discourage multiple health behavior change approaches because uh, I think they can be very helpful for some people, but it does take an in-depth conversation and reflection around your current circumstances uh, and your competing priorities. A lot of people prefer to start introducing one thing at a time so that they can feel accomplished. They can feel rewarded as they start engaging in those micro behaviors, in those micro habits, um, I think you you called them. And then they build up the confidence and the self-efficacy to keep increasing that, right? We, we know graded tasks is... Um, a commonly used behavior change technique. Uh, there are also, when it comes to goal setting, to be honest, uh, whether or not I act, I use the word goal depends on who uh, I'm designing for or who I'm working with one-on-one. -on -one. Because again, we talk about neuroscience, we talk about memories. The word goal probably has things associated with it. It has past goal attempts associated with that word. If those did not go very well, and you have a long history of failed attempts at behavior change, then that word may not be the healthiest one to use. Sometimes instead, I use habits, I use the word behaviors, I use the word uh, uh, experiments all the time. Let's engage in behavioral experiments and see how they go on our way to form a habit. Um, so there have to be nuances in the way that you approach it, depending on the unique needs of the person. And um, the, the last thing I'll say about this is no matter who you are, anytime you are setting a goal for yourself, before it happens, you have to set expectations with yourself that whether you reach that number, that arbitrary line in the sand that you've drawn, it does not make you a failure. This isn't, you have to have an experimental mindset. You have to go into it as I'm approaching this as an option. I'm going to see if this works out for me. If it's not right for my body or my mind, I'm going to adapt, right? I'm going to adapt. And there are hundreds of thousands of other things I can try for this domain of well-being that can that can help me optimize my life. I'm loving this conversation. I've been able to interview uh, BJ Fogg and Nir Eyal, some of the uh, you know, prominent names in behavioral science, especially when it comes to uh, writing books, especially Hooked and Tiny Habits got pretty popular. But I want to ask from you, Casey, what are your thoughts on the main drivers of human behavior? What do you think as humans, what are most people driven by. And please, could you also educate our listeners on intrinsic and extrinsic motivation? Because a lot of people have said extrinsic mm. motivation doesn't work. Mm. So 
Um, I can't answer your question. So, hey, because it depends on the behavior that we're targeting. There are so many different determinants of human behavior. uh, And the, the list is drastically different for different populations and for, you know, different behaviors. But we do know from certain theories and frameworks um, that we've developed over the years, right? Um, self-determination theory, right? There, there tend to be common themes uh, that we can, uh, that we can investigate and, and help us predict behavior change. So, you know, Susan Mishi and colleagues, right? The Combi model. Um, if you look at the key themes of capability, opportunity, and motivation, uh, if you look at self-determination theory and you think about relatedness, competence, and autonomy, um, you can provide high order themes. But within that theme, there are going to be many sub-themes and uh, many, many mechanisms which fall within that and it really, um, this is why the future is applied behavioral science. The future of well-being is and must leverage applied behavioral science to investigate which mechanisms of action are the most critical ones to target for any given individual, given their past history, their life circumstances, their culture, uh, the environment they live in. Um, You know, you even talk about people who are living in urban areas versus rural areas, right? Their environment is very drastically different. Does it take 75 minutes to get to your local grocery store or does it take 30 seconds? Um, Do you have safe streets to go for a walk on? Or um, is there gang activity right outside your door? Are you constantly exposed to food marketing for ultra processed foods every time you drive down the street? And that's what your brain is picking up on. And, and uh, you know, the convenience of that is supplying your family with nutrients or Have you been trained in, uh, you know, integrative nutrition and how to feed your body? All of these types of questions are critical to determining what drives someone's behavior. And so the better that we can get at investigating those determinants, the better we can do at helping people because we're not going to waste their time. And I see that far too often. We waste people's time by providing them health education on things that they already know, on things that they already do, on things that are not meaningful for them. And then we see attrition and we see drops in engagement and retention and we wonder why. That's what I heard a lot. A lot of people say knowledge doesn't change behavior. That's funny because I've launched the human behavior community on good self app And we're setting challenges to do 12K steps a day or sleep a certain amount and as a community, it's about accountability and social proof. And we're also trying to couple with cash rewards. But there's not a one-size-fits-all, right? And that's why it becomes very hard to do. And I saw this with Clubhouse. When I first got on the Clubhouse, there was a lot of hype, a lot of exclusivity, which drove a lot of people into there, a lot of FOMO. And then we saw the social proof aspect where we saw celebrities on there, the chance you could bump into someone, keeping people on. With the environment, as you described, everyone was inside, was locked inside, had a lot of time, which made that, you know, a super success, a four billion valuation. Mm-hmm. But and then I was lucky with the human behavior community. I was like, people like you, behavioral scientists, give a lot of talks, doctors, and my own dopamine system was in this kind of, you know, this this you know this accelerated growth. We gained like five hundred thousand followers in four months. So my brain was in overdrive, like trying to just process all of that so quickly, right? And I remember I was doing one show after another and it was driving me to do more. And I was like, probably burnt out doing audio. But it's funny because when COVID changed, we saw the deceleration. We saw the drop off of Clubhouse, which was seen as a very habit forming app or one with low friction, no video, it's audio. But all those behaviors went away pretty quickly. So I think I think what you've described makes a lot of sense for me having been through, you know, the tech up and downs and seeing how certain you know, environmental conditions make a massive difference to kind of the behaviors and choices you make. And that's why I guess we can't say this will drive everyone, right? And even the component of personality. There's been, in the app I built, we had the big five personality test. And we saw how 
change an extroversion and openness related to, to, to people wanting different things. Like I may be comfortable sharing on my Insta story. Hey, I did, you know, I got a sleep score of 80 on my aura ring, but a lot of people might want privacy. So it, it's very nuanced. I think you've explained right. that really, really well. Uh, I've loved how you said that, which now kind of, as, as we get to the end of the podcast and the, the, the final part, um, a question I like asking all the guests we have is what is a behavior or a habit that A, helps you perform well, but B, you probably can't live without. If you had to choose one, what would that be? It would be sleep. You do not want to see Casey on five hours of sleep. Um, I'm not kidding. It's why I'm not having a third kid. It is challenging for me not to sleep. Um, You know, there's so much hap- there's so much happening in our brain in our body as we sleep and it is something that especially leaders and executives um and those trying to build something incredible deprioritize because essentially we're forced to be quiet we're forced to rest we're forced to step away from the computer, step away from the pitch, step away from the beautiful piece of art that we are are trying to uh, develop for the gallery, right? Whatever it is, it requires us to make a conscious effort of stepping away and prioritizing our rest. And we tend to think of ourselves last. For me, um, getting eight hours of sleep makes an incredible difference in my focus, in my attention, uh, in the way that I communicate with others in my level of compassion and empathy. So hands down, sleep is the most critical uh, part of my life when it comes to being um, a good leader and a good person. I love that you picked sleep uh, and that's my area of expertise. <laughs> so having worked oh, with, with a sleep and Crescent Hell has got acquired in April, sleep is something out of the, all the lifestyle medicine facets, Sleep is something I've kind of more sub-specialized in. And I'm glad you're, you're our first guest that actually has said sleep. And it's ah. making, making me smile. Because <laughs> the number of executives I had who had poor sleep and they were asking for these 1% gains in certain supplements, et cetera, just to optimize their mm. sleep and REM and deep sleep was insane. And I think you're, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the literature actually shows that if you're sleep deprived, the next day you're less likely to be perceived as charismatic you're more likely to have emotional uh, irregularity, which means that you're dysregulated. You're less likely to control when you're stressed emotions like anger. And that obviously affects your performance and how you're perceived. So yeah, sleep is super important. And as a former wannabe dermatologist for our college and how we look, <laughs> sleep is actually super important where the repair happens. So I'm, glad, I'm really happy that you picked sleep. And as, as we kind of st- end the podcast, I, I want to touch upon some of the more edgy topics. And behavior is fascinating to a lot of people. But there's also been times where people have got creeped out, for lack of a better word. Mm. Watching Black Mirror and seeing things like Cambridge Analytica and, you know, what happened with, with the whole field of psychographics. Where do you think AI plays a role in this future of behavioral science and working out how humans think. Do you think it's something we can do successfully? Where do you think it's going? And then could you explain to us what psychographics are? I, I am leaning at the edge of my seat to see what comes next and how we pull together to use AI in ethical ways. I don't hide the fact that I am nervous. Um, I am nervous because we know that privacy concerns keep people from trusting software, keep people from trusting clinicians, uh, keep people from engaging in health-promoting behaviors. We don't live in that safe of a world right now, and people hold tightly onto that privacy. It is nothing new, even in, you know, there's social desirability bias. There's a, there's a laundry list of reasons why people don't tell the truth and that they haven't told the truth in clinical settings or in, in behavior change settings. I think AI increases those risks for vulnerability 
Um, and you know, there's, there's even things that people aren't considering, like when they use chat GBT and they use other AI models where they're asking them to write their pitches for them. They're asking them to uh, create their LinkedIn posts for them and they're feeding the models uh, IP or personal information about themselves or people or whoever it is, right? Um, and there's a lot of trainings that have not yet been developed on how to use AI in a safe way that protects privacy and security. So I think we have, I think that the technology is advancing in a pace that we are not keeping up with from a behavioral standpoint and for the protection of people. So I'm excited about what AI has to offer. Um, and I am also nervous about um, how fast we can keep up with the innovation curve. It's funny because I'm just on the wait list for the humane AI pin. <laughs> just came mm, out. I saw that. And um, I have thought about it potentially listening to every conversation I have off camera, <laughs> which obviously mm -hmm. we humans, we, we may say certain things, we may not believe in it in the moment. And yeah, that type of surveillance often is scary for everyone. And um, it's, it's really interesting. And, and actually talking on that point, my reasoning for purchasing the Humane AI pin was, like you mentioned earlier, you were tracking calories to an obsessive extent. I've had periods of that mm -hmm. in my life as well. And I just felt I was less happy during the time where I was micromanaging to that extent. And having to log every meal for an extensive period of time gets very hard and people drop off. And my kind of pull for this was in the advert when they showed someone's going about their daily business and the humane AI pin is telling them, hey, you have 20 grams of protein left in the day because it's automatically calculating what you're eating. And that was finally the biggest pull for me. I've not heard anyone else talk about that, but I think automation and passive tracking is probably where health needs to go and where kind of we're aiming to go with it. Because I think the more you can automate it or have an expert take you through that, the more you can cognitively offload that part, the easier it becomes to then you focus the mental energy on like you described the mechanisms of actual behavior change, right? And yes. live by those rules. So Casey, it's been brilliant having you on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome obviously working with you and being able to, you know, pick your brain whenever we're stuck <laughs> to get some of the best <laughs> behavioral insights. Uh, it's been, been a real pleasure. Um, I would love for the audience to know where they can follow you. Where can they um, find out more about what you do and your insights, uh, your social media handles? Absolutely. So I have a website coming soon. It's been deprioritized so that I can sleep. Um, <laughs> but you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm linkedin.com slash IN slash Casey P. Hughes. Uh, pretty easy to find on there. Would love to connect and, and get to know uh, more people who are interested in Jeevan and, and, you know, just learning more about health and well-being. Uh, and yeah, let, let's get in touch. I love I love coffee chats. Yeah, I mean, Casey, uh, you're always funny because I saw your post first on LinkedIn and it struck me straight away. Um, and that's how we got the conversation going because you had such similar interests to me, human behavior, lifestyle medicine, uh, digital health. Um, and your posts are very well crafted as well. So I think um, a lot of people will benefit from following you. So definitely follow Casey. Thank you. And Casey, I'm going to ask for one more question. Is there any books sure. that you recommend for people on behavior? Like I think before this podcast started, I, this is one I'm delving into, Behave, that you said you also have on your, yeah. your shelf. The Biology of Humans Are Best and Worst, which I think is very important. Um, is there any ones that, you, that you've read or would you recommend for a kind of a, I guess, a listener of this podcast? Yes and no. Um, so, you know what I tell people to do? Yeah. I tell people to go to Barnes and Nobles or go to, a, I don't know if you have those in the UK, but go to a bookstore in the UK, um, wherever you are in the world, and go to the self-help section and 
sit there and go through a few. And and I'm sorry if that's not specific advice, but there are so many books that are going to resonate with different people. Uh, my li- library is filled with books like Flow, um, books like Trying to Change, um, books on uh, self-help for OCD, self-help for anxiety, um, cognitive behavioral therapy workbooks, right? There are so many beautiful resources out there. Um, and I've also been through tons of books that my friends loved and I just couldn't get through, right? Um, so I will always recommend you go to a real, actual bookstore, um, open some books. Yes, the paper kind, if you can. It has a different way of, uh, you know, your brain treats those differently than words you see on a screen. Um, and, you know, get a list and and start reading because I can't recommend a single book um, because there is not, again, I'm all about adaptability and precision and personalization, and there will not be a single book that speaks to everybody. Yeah, and if you establish a reading habit, let us know what you used to establish the reading habit because I know I find reading super hard these days and I'm normally working out and listening to audiobooks. And you talked about this earlier, coupling habits together, kind of like tip killing yeah. two birds with one stone. I know motivates me with, with one stone. Um, so <laughs> that's something I've done to get through a lot of books because yeah. as we know, behavioral science, health, every day there's new things coming out with new books. It's yes. hard to stay on top of it. So thank you, Casey. And you just- yeah, you gave me a great idea. Maybe maybe I'll put together a LinkedIn post in the coming days or we yeah. can work together on one, right? Like a, an array of different books for, for different well-being areas. Would be would be a pleasure. Would be a pleasure, actually. I think that would be a great <laughs> one for the listeners. So thanks, guys. You had Casey today on the podcast. We'll join you next week with another episode of the UG podcast. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube as well. And let us know any questions you have for our guests and we can send it to you. Thank you.